Irish Lives on 9-11, a 20th anniversary News Talk special. Hello and welcome to the programme. My name is Simon Tierney and over the past few months I've been investigating Irish connections with the tragic events that occurred in downtown Manhattan two decades ago. At least six of the almost 3,000 people who died at the Twin Towers were born in Ireland, while further Irish citizens and Irish Americans also lost their lives. This is Irish Lives on 9-11, a 20th anniversary News Talk special. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. This just in, you are looking at obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. So you have no idea right now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. Right, oh my gosh, another plane has just hit another building, flew right into the middle of it. And there's, you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. Good Lord. There are no words. In this programme, we're going to explore some of the lives of the Irish people who died that day. How they found themselves ordinary working men and women in an extraordinary situation. I'll also examine how their families have coped with managing their private grief within the context of one of the most recognisable and iconic tragedies of our lifetimes. Later in the programme, I'll be looking at the life of Anne McHugh from Tume who was working as a broker at the top of the South Tower of the World Trade Centre on the morning of 9-11. I'll also be speaking with Paul McCormack, an NYPD officer who was raised in Donegal about his three months at Ground Zero after the attacks. But first, one of those who lost their lives was Sean Canavan, a son of Irish parents who had emigrated to New York in the 1950s. I'm joined now by his sister Celine, who lives in Monaghan. Sleen, just for a little bit of context, can you tell us what was Sean doing at the World Trade Center on the morning of September the 11th, 2001? Why was he there on that particular day? Well, Sean was a carpenter. Uh, He was a a superb tradesman, actually. So um, he was a union carpenter with the District Council of Carpenters in New York. And he was working for a company called Installation Resources in um, the South Tower. Okay, and what was his job that day? Whereabouts in the building was he? Well, they were refurbishing offices um, on the 92nd floor, and there were the freight elevators don't stop at every floor. Like there are certain floors that you can go to to uh, receive the freight. So. He went up to the 98th floor where the freight elevator was, and it was while he was separated from his company that um, the whole the whole the whole attack started. So um, we're assuming that he was still on the 98th floor because he was the only man in his company that didn't get out. Okay, so he was very very high up in the South Tower of the World Trade Center now. The South Tower, of course, was the second 
uh, of the attacks. The North Tower was the one that was hit first. So the people who were in the South Tower between the two attacks, they presumably, well, no one knew that the second one was going to happen. So were they allowed to evacuate the building or was that considered too dangerous at that time? Well, he, he was aware that the first pl- the first building had been hit, but I guess like everybody else, he assumed it was an accident and um, he, they were informed over the loudspeaker to remain in the building because it was safer, which in fairness it probably was, assuming there wasn't another attack coming because there was debris falling to the ground and it, it would have been safer inside than on ground level. So um, he he did he did know about the first attack. He called my sister Kathleen, and he was very disturbed by it. But going by the announcement on the loudspeaker, he went back to work. They said it was safe to stay in the building. So he did make a phone call on his mobile phone from the South Tower to the family. Well, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we had mobiles then. But um, he, he did call my sister. He called the landline, called my sister's house, and left a message for her, just stating what he had seen. That it was very disturbing, and he had seen, you know, some hor- horrible things in the next building. And that he said, he said, I'm going to get out of here. So the last thing we heard from him was that he was leaving. So we thought that he was, he was leaving the building at that point. But that's not what happened. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting and important point, Celine, because we forget now, 20 years later, um, or at least those of us who are not directly involved, that the people in the South Tower would never have imagined that a second attack could happen. I mean, the first attack was so extraordinary and so sudden and so awful that it would have been the last thing in the people's minds who were in the South Tower. That's right. That's right. We, I was on the phone with my mother at the time when the first building was on fire. And my father had said I could hear him in the background saying the World Trade Center's on fire. And I think it was still a little bit, you know, the foggy then, even what happened, was it a plane? And, you know, as, as it was coming you know, to light of what that it was actually an airplane, we just thought, oh, how tragic. It's just a, a terrible accident. And then as we were continuing in our conversation, another plane hit and it was just shocking. So at that point, um, I still didn't know Sean was there. None of us did. Um, I... You know, again, we just thought how how awful, how how terrible for those people that are trapped in there. And I ended the phone call with my mother, and then I called her back a few minutes later to inquire where my brothers were, because I knew they both worked in Manhattan. My other brother, Kieran, is also a union carpenter, and she was under the impression that they were in Midtown, not in downtown. So that was fine. We, you know, I thought we were okay personally. And came to find out that Sean's company took a, a head count of everybody coming out of the bu- building and the only person unaccounted for was Sean. You mentioned a moment ago, Celine, your dad, he, there, there is an interesting connection, family connection with the World Trade Center. And it kind of came full circle in a way with 
Sean working there in 2001 as a carpenter because your father had been involved in the World Trade Centre at a much earlier date, hadn't he? He had, yeah. The The World Trade Centre was built in the early 70s or finished in the early 70s and my father would have worked in that in those buildings many times as a carpenter. Um, you know, it, it would have been a very frequent place to go because there were so many offices and so many shop fronts and offices and uh, conference rooms to be finished with woodwork. So, you know, there would have been some place where he and my two brothers would have been regularly. Yeah, and such an extraordinarily large building. I mean... Mm-hmm. It was well over 100 floors in height, for many years the tallest building in the world. What was your father's um, experience of the event? I mean, unfathomable grief, no doubt, but that personal connection with the building must have been particularly disturbing for him. Yeah, I I, I imagine it was. I. I what, what I remember most about my father at that time was uh, my brother Kieran, after he got the phone call from from the boss saying that Sean hadn't been accounted for, he was going out to my parents' home to tell them. And I, it's it seemed very soon to me because we still didn't know whether he did get out or didn't get out, but Kieran was sure, his boss was sure that he was still on the 98th floor. And when he came into the house to tell my parents, he said that my father knew straight away as soon as Kieran came in that Sean wasn't coming back. So your father and your mother then, I'm interested to get a little bit of family history because the connections with Ireland are very strong. Your parents moved from Ireland to the States. When when did that happen? Uh, my mother uh, emigrated to New York from Cross McGlenn in the 50s, in the mid-50s, and my father went from Balagali to shortly after, I believe in 58, and they they met, they met actually on my father's first day in America, so... Wow. Um, yeah, <laughs> so um, they married in 1960, and then they had... Kathleen and Sean and Teresa, Dermot, Kieran and Celine. So they had six of us, yeah. So you're the youngest? I'm the youngest, yeah. Okay. So quite a large family. And then you grew up as a family, um, you and Sean and your siblings. Where were you reared in New York? Well, we were all born in the Bronx and we lived for um, a number of years in Queens as well. And then we moved to Long Island. Now, the huge challenge for you in September of 2001, Celine, is that you were here in Ireland when it happened and you were desperate to get back to New York to to, to deal with everything and to get information about, about Sean, about your brother. Um, how did that work itself out? Um... I that that time seems so foggy in my mind. I guess you know, with the all the emotions that we still hadn't located Sean, or uh, we we knew that he was down there, but we didn't have any proof. And um, 
it was just such a confusing time. And my, my sister, Teresa, also lives here. She lives in Armagh. And we we did finally get home when they opened the airspace again, which from our, from our calculations, we think was approximately maybe 10 to 14 days after. So it did take a long time. Like that was the longest two weeks of our lives to wait to get home to see the rest of our family. And of course, and then sort of be- you arrived, you arrived in New York and I presume you went to Ground Zero. What yeah. w- That must have been a, a disturbing experience for you arriving at that place. It really was because, you know, we had all spent quite a bit of time in, in Manhattan and I think all of my siblings, except for myself, worked in Manhattan at one point and to go down to what we thought was such a bustling hive of activity and just to find it just quite literally a war zone. It was just rubble and ash and smoke. And I remember everything just being soaking wet from all the fire hoses. Like keep in mind that the fires burned at 9-11 for over a hundred days. So there was, it was still smoking and smoldering and, it really was otherworldly. It just didn't seem, it didn't even seem like America. It was, it was just indescribable. It was so sad. Everything was gray and dirty and sodden. And it was, it was really a terrible, terrible thing to witness. And to think that he was still in what they referred to as the pile, you know, to think that he was still in there somewhere was just devastating. Of course, yeah. And I mean, when you were there, when you arrived at the pile, uh, what were you able to do? Was it a very disorganized place or was anyone able to offer you some answers or? Well, we didn't really get answers, but we, 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 were, we were comforted greatly by groups like the American Red Cross and um, you know, when we we were brought down there by ferry, so um, we got we got off the boat, and you know, still weren't sure what exactly we were going to see. All we had seen was what was on TV. But when you walk into it, you just feel so small in comparison to the height of the rubble and the height of the destruction. It was really. Even though the buildings had come down, it was still massively high. And, uh, you know, the the organizations, I'm not even sure who else was there aside from the American Red Cross, but they were very good to us and they comforted us and they showed us as much as they could without endangering us or anybody else. And, you know, all around us, people were still working. You know, they were still trying to determine was there anybody in there, whether they were trying to keep it safe. They were trying to keep things from collapsing. So it was, it was, it was silent, but busy at the same time. It was very surreal. Yeah. That's an extraordinary description, Celine. Um, uh, was it very challenging or, or indeed how long did it take for you and your family to receive any news or remains of your brother? Um, I think it was the, 
In May of the following year, I believe, we got confirmation of uh, DNA presence down there. Um, they they discovered a, a part of his heel bone, which um, we're surmising was the only part of him that survived because of his, you know, heavy work boots that he wore. It would have been the only part of his body that was protected. So um, at that time, I believe we were given the option of taking those remains or possibly waiting to see would there be any more because there were, there are still people who haven't been identified or and have had no remains located. But at that time, it was still very much, we thought it was possible that there might be more. So we did wait for a few months. And then on the following year, what would have been September 9th of 2002, what would have been his 40th birthday was when we had an actual funeral and we buried the remains that we did have. And during that time at Grand Zero in September of 2001, did you... Did you manage to go to Sean's home? Were you able to to go there? We did. Yes, we went to his apartment, and I'm uh, sure that was a difficult experience because this is his home where he left to, to go for work. He happened to be going to work, like millions of other people in New York City on that that morning. That's right. Yeah, it, he left and. You know, there was milk in the fridge and there was, you know, dishes in the sink and, you know, just every indication of a life half lived that somebody was coming back and they weren't finished. So um, I'm sure he never, it never crossed his mind that we would be cleaning out his apartment and, you know, packing up his clothes and things like that, things that are, you know, all very personal, his photographs and his papers and his, you know, making his bed, you know, just things like that, that you don't ever expect anyone to do for you when you're young and healthy and just going to work. Uh, absolutely. Um, 9-11 is, is such an iconic tragedy in the sense that Everyone knows about this anniversary. Everyone who is of a certain age remembers where they were when it happened. It affected everyone in, in a different way. But for you and your family, it's something very personal. How do you reconcile, Celine, the fact that this is such an iconic tragedy, but for you, it's a very private tragedy? I think maybe in some ways it it feels like two separate things. Like I I can I can sort of look at the attacks on America on nine eleven as you know a political thing and as a an American tragedy. But then when I you know when you sort of sit and think about it and it's just a, it's a completely separate thing that. Nobody other than other nine eleven families can really understand, and it, there is a difference somehow between somebody who maybe died of an illness or died in a car accident or something. But to die in such a public way and to have your grief so publicized it is does add another dimension to losing a a family member. 
you know, it, it just changes the whole dynamic of it. And, you know, just the fact that we had to get the Department of Foreign Affairs to help us to get home to, to, to our family at that time, you know, it's, it's, it's a very strange feeling and a very strange memories thinking back, you know, things that you shouldn't be thinking of when you're, when you're mourning the loss of somebody, you should be thinking only of that person, but we were actually thinking of, you know, air safety and how are we going to get home and will we get out again? And sure, you know, it was just such a tumultuous time. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm interested. And uh, it was around 10 years ago, if memory serves, under President, President Obama that Osama bin Laden was captured and executed. Um, what was that experience like for you as the, the architect of 9-11? You know, we don't often talk enough about justice in relation to what happened that day. And indeed, so few people have ever been brought to justice for, for the crimes that were committed. But what was the experience of that like for you and your family? Did it offer any reprieve? or? Um, I, I don't think I ever really thought anybody would be brought to justice. Um, at the time, though... I recall it being in the middle of the night or very early in the morning when uh, Osama bin Laden had been captured and killed. And I got a message from my brother, Kieran, uh, a WhatsApp message saying that they got him. And of course, you jump out of bed and you I didn't think it mattered to me as much. But at the time, it obviously did. I got up and I turned on the news and I watched it and I it was there was some satisfaction to that there was some relief i i don't know why i i, I mean i didn't feel at the time uh, uh, that I, there was uh, that i was under any continued threat from osama bin laden but the fact that he was captured it felt like it was putting a period at the end of it i felt like at least that portion of it was over i felt very appreciative to president obama for that at the same time, though, it's it's we were painfully aware that that didn't change anything for us. It really it was going to make no difference in our lives in the way that Sean was gone. We were never going to have him back, no many no matter how many Al Qaeda or Taliban people mm. they caught. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's interesting. Um, do you remember? This might be an odd question, Celine, as as we begin to wrap up here, but. Do you remember the last time that you spoke with Sean, whether it was in person or on the telephone or the last time you had a, a chat with him? I do. I do. It was two days before September 11th. It was on, uh, yes, it was two, It was on the Sunday on the 9th. It was his birthday and he was out at my parents' house and they were having dinner and cake and a nice little low-key celebration you know, nothing fancy, just the family getting together. And, you know, I was sorry to be missing it. I had just moved here in May of that year. But um, you just moved to Ireland. I had just moved to Ireland in, in May of 2001. So um, I was only gone a few months at that time. But yeah, the, and the time that I actually saw him in person before that was he left us to the airport when we were leaving, which was very meaningful and he's my son 
Aiden's godfather, so he had made a special effort before we left to take him around New York and show him all the wonderful things in New York. He took him to the Bronx Zoo and the aquarium at Coney Island. And, you know, he really just showed us all a great time before we moved away. And um, we we just had a, a wonderful, beautiful memories with him. He was just such a ball of love and light. Celine, thank you so much for speaking with us about your memories, not just of 9-11, a very personal day of tragedy for you and the entire Canavan family, but also for remembering Sean in in such a beautiful way. Um, And I want to thank you uh, for your bravery in speaking to us here on News Talk. Thank you so much, Celine Canavan. Thank you, Simon. You're listening to Irish Lives on 9-11, a 20th anniversary News Talk special with me, Simon Tierney. Anne McHugh from Toom in County Galway was due to be married two months after she passed away in the World Trade Centre on 9-11. I'm joined now by her sister, Maura McHugh, a writer living in the west of Ireland. So, Maura, can you tell me a little bit about Anne's path to New York? How did she come to be working in the World Trade Centre on that day 20 years ago? Uh, Well, Anne was born in New York uh, along with my older brother, Patrick, and her older brother, Patrick. And then uh, my parents had met in New York and they had had children. Um, They went to another state, had two more, myself and my younger brother, and then they emigrated back to Ireland and, uh, you know, they oh, they bought a pub in the center of the town of Tume and raised us all there. But I mean, that was during the 80s and there wasn't uh, exactly, I think most people <laughs> were sort of being raised to emigrate <laughs> at that point. Um, and because we were both, we were all dual nationals, there was always a sense that we would return back to the States. Actually, all of us did um, at some points and some of us came back, but all of us went to the States. So when Anne was 19, she went, she moved to New York. Um, the thing about Anne is she was always super outgoing person, uh, very smart, but also very creative. Um, and she, I don't think Ireland <laughs> was capable of containing her at that time. She was just uh, someone who always wanted to be in the thick of things, and uh, so I, I think she just got impatient, really, with Ireland. And she so when she was 19, she was like, that's it, I'm off. <laughs> and she, she hit hit New York and she did a lot of different jobs. But January, actually, of 2001, she moved to Eurobrokers, which were in the South Tower. She had a long association with the towers. She had actually been present when the uh, bombing had occurred in, I think, was it 93? Uh she was also there for that. Yeah, so, so this... that was the the Al Qaeda attack of 1993 on the same towers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she was actually there for that, and I remember that very distinctly because I was in Ireland at the time, and uh, we were all waiting to hear. And I remember her describing walking down through the towers in the dark because there was hardly any light, uh, and it's you know <laughs> over a hundred floors that had to come down. And she was covered in soot and everything. And she survived that. Um, So, you know, there's that sense that, uh, you know, she would survive anything. But that was not the case. So, unfortunately. 
Wow, that is extraordinary, um, Maura. Now, when the events 20 years ago took place, Anne, yourself, I suppose the whole McHugh family, you were all preparing for her wedding, which would be a few months later, I understand. Yeah, she was engaged to uh, a man called Patrick Day. Uh, He actually was born on the 17th of March, so his parents had a sense of humor. (laughs) And he, uh, uh, so they were engaged to be married, and Anne had decided she wanted to get married in Florence, Italy. So we had, we were in the middle of a lot of preparations for that. Um, Yeah, so that, that was... That was the event that was being planned. She was very happy with Patrick. She had met him in August 99 and uh, they kind of knew pretty quickly they wanted to get married. His family were from South Dakota, actually. One thing that has been on my mind when I was preparing to speak with you, Maura, is that Anne passed in an event which is so widely recognised, almost, I suppose, iconic in its tragedy. The, The images, the... The videos, they they follow us everywhere we go. And I wonder how difficult that is for you as her sister when your grief as a family is a private thing, but it's within the context of an event that everybody is so familiar with. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. Every year you never know when you're going to encounter a an image or a video there's a lot of documentaries and films uh so you go through your life just having to always um uh deal with it and it is like a um a bandage that is constantly ripped off a wound and most people when they suffer a sudden death you know you have a a very steep um um you know, grieving period because it's sudden and traumatic. Um, but then you have all this media attention and you're, you kind of lose your sister to the event in a way. Um, and and that that's hard. And also just just the, the political dimension to it, um, all of that element, it just, it's not really natural to be constantly digging at a difficult event in your life. The way, you know, most humans um, get by in the world is that we have our mourning period and then we move on and we uh, come into acceptance, which is the hard part, but it's natural. And it's not to say that you don't miss the person or you don't care about the person, but you're not constantly going back and looking at it. Um, and for me, every time I see the towers fall, I know my sister's in it. So it's it's not a simple thing for me to see. Um, and also, people are very intrigued. What I find difficult is often I don't talk about this a great deal to people because it's like a conversation. You can't just mention it. People will always have you know questions because... It's the kind of event that when you say you had someone directly involved in it, it makes the event real in a way that most people don't have events. Um, they're not real to them in a way. They're kind of abstract. Um, and I mean, after all, my goodness, 
I wasn't even in the towers. There's so many people in New York uh, who were actually there. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes total sense, um, Maura. Um, it brings me on to my next question: Is you mentioned that your family, of course, owned McHugh's Pub in um, in Tume. So your family and your father, of course, Podrick was very well known, continues to be to this day in the town. So I imagine the the funeral was a large affair and that the remembrance in the years since has been significant. Yeah, um, we actually had two memorial services for Anne. I actually think this is um, <laughs> quite funny because if anyone deserved two parties, it's it, it was Anne. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we had a, a mass in the Church of St. Monica on uh, 79th Street on the 27th of September. And then we had mass in Tume Cathedral on the 13th of October. And uh, yeah, so there were thousands of people there. A very large turnout. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the hardest things for so many families, like in your situation, was that a lot of loved ones, they didn't get any... Uh, it was difficult to get closure because there might not have been remains or people weren't found. It, was, was there anything from Ground Zero that that your family were able to keep as to maintain a connection with her or anything like that? Do you keep a photograph or anything? Oh, like yeah. That? I mean, we all have, um, we have, e- like, I still have email correspondence with Anne. She used to, she used to email me all the time. I mean, she took the email like a duck to water. <laughs> she was, as I say, she was very outgoing. So, and she used to phone me from her desk, which was great in the time. I think this is easy. We, we do forget this is before mobile phones and smartphones. And um, she uh, so it was, it was expensive to call long distance. It was actually very handy because she would ring me very regularly. She would ring my family very regularly. Um, but we all knew that she might be in the middle of a sentence and suddenly you'd hear the phone drop and then she'd be shouting um, a sale on a bond because she was always watching the the wow. board as, as as it went on so uh, it was really funny I I mean we just all took that for granted it wasn't uh, anything but yeah she would so I actually have um, loads of a good bunch of emails from her and we have pictures things like that but yeah she uh, we have no remains there was nothing and in fact I think you know that's hard the it was just slow losing of hope um and it was quite quick you know within a week because lots of people were missing for a while because it was such and you know people had been scattered to various hospitals and people were you know hurt and things like that so it was very hard um but that yeah that you know within a week we were pretty sure what we mean we were you know, we were sure before that, but within a week we knew it was impossible she was still alive. Yeah, sure. I, I know it's it's very frustrating, more for families of the victims, that so few of the perpetrators or the, the sort of the architects, so to speak, of 9-11 were ever brought to justice for the events of that day. I mean, the, I know there's even four or five men who are awaiting trial um, later this year, 20 years on from the events. What are your thoughts about that? Are you angry that more people weren't brought to justice about it or do you feel resigned? Well, it's a complicated situation. The people who crashed the planes are dead. So 
you know, you have you have that finality. So then you have to ask yourself, what are you looking for? You know, the people who were the architects of that are all over the place in lots of different countries. Um, some of which have died now and some of which have been brought to justice. Depends on what you think is justice, you know. I'd, and and the other thing to remember is that it was, it's easy in retrospect, we forget about things, but it was such a politically charged event. Um, it had such ramifications all over the world. It became a political kind of, um, you know, baseball that people threw around. And then they started using it for as reasons to do other things which weren't necessarily uh, to do with 9-11. And that's hard because you start hearing, you know, the dead of 2000. We're doing it in their name. And that's, well, they're not doing it. You know, are they really? They're, that's, again, a complicated thing. Uh, if you search for revenge, I I think in this situation, it's extremely hard to get it. Um, uh, finally, um, my last question. Do you remember the the last time you saw Anne? You were, of course, her younger sister. She was your older sister. Do you remember the last time you, you met each other? No, actually, I. It, it's funny that you should mention it. Um, I, it was... It, I think it was Christmas because we were all um, gearing up for the um, the wedding and she came home every Christmas. She usually came home twice a year. In fact, uh, she loved coming home and meeting people and, you know, just, you know, blowing off a lot of steam because she her job was very stressful and actually quite high, um, you know, yeah. It was it was a lot of work. It was a high, it was a very intense job, let's just say. So she she enjoyed getting away and coming home and connecting back to Ireland and her friends here and you know her her family as well. So it would have been at Christmas. I don't have a very specific memory of that actually. I have lots of different memories of her and things we did together because I lived in New York for a time as well, and both of us would go and hang out just as of course both my brothers Brendan and Patrick she also would um when they lived in New York she also spent lots of time with them so I uh, yeah I have lots of great memories of Anne she was a fantastic person Maura a real pleasure to speak with you um we send you and your family our very best wishes thank you Maura thank you Simon Tierney here with you for this special 9-11 20th anniversary programme on News Talk. Joining me now is Paul McCormack. Paul grew up in Donegal before moving to the States, training as an NYPD officer and finding himself on the scene on 9-11. Paul, what were you doing on the morning of September 11th when you received word of the events that were taking place in downtown Manhattan? On the morning of September 11th, I was the commanding officer of the 41st Precinct in the South Bronx. That's Fort Apache. And I was on my way to Fordham University to teach a promotional class to police officers looking to become sergeants. And there was about 150 police officers at the class. And at that time, 
the way a precinct commander would get notified of any major incident was through the beepers we used to have on our waist. I don't know if your callers remember the beepers, but um, we got word that there was a small plane that hit one of the towers. And um, I had a call into the borough headquarters. And at that time, we were getting word that there was quite a few casualties already and that it wasn't a small plane. And um, when the second plane hit, we knew very quickly it was, it was terrorism. And I ordered everybody into work, into the precincts, and I headed into my own precinct as well to meet my executive staff and get to work. Okay, so when you arrived down um, uh, to the scene, uh, what did you encounter when you got there? Uh, and what, uh, at what time did you get there? I went down to the, the site shortly after that, sh- shortly after the second tower fell, because I, I had a sergeant and eight police officers down there, and we were there was no communication. Uh, the communication for the radios was uh, they, their towers were at, World Trade Center, so a lot of the communication and the radios went down, and we had to use citywide radio systems, and cell towers were down. It was very difficult to get, get a hold of anybody, so we were very concerned about our personnel that were down there. For sure. And now, I know you spent a considerable amount of time at Ground Zero in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. What were you doing? What was your specific work there at the site? Well, it, it was it was a uh, rescue and recovery mission at, at at the beginning, but it became very apparent very quickly that it was it was just going to be a recovery, because um, it was an incident we didn't know what to do. It was something that we'd never prepared for, and the first thing that we did as as a police department, we, we set up a, a a basically an exclusion zone on 14th Street from river to river in Manhattan. Everybody went out and the only people coming in were, were uh, emergency responders, uh, first responders, police, fire. They were the only people allowed in. And as you know, the hours and days went by, we consolidated that and it became basically a 10-block radius of ground zero that was a fenced-in area with egress and, and uh, entrance points that were manned by you know police all over that area. And the police and fire and rescue workers that responded from around the country. Basically, we, we, the amount of rubble that was there was breathtaking, to say, for lack of a better word. It was a mountain of rubble. And when I, when I saw it, it was like, it was very sad, emotional. Like the Twin Towers were always something, as a New Yorker, you, you would use as a landmark going down to Manhattan. But driving down there for the first time on 9-11, and all you seen was the billowing pile of smoke coming up and the towers were just gone it was it was it was a stunning thing but but working there for three months it was all about getting the rubble away trying to recover remains identification anything that could identify any of the people that were missing and um i think everybody that was there were were very proud to be there to do it i personally was very proud i was i was never as proud to be a New Yorker, I was never more proud to be an American than I, than I was when I was working down there. Because at that time, our country was united. It was a very short time fleeting in life where you feel that. But our country was united at the time. Everybody, there was no politics or bickering like there is right now. We were all united as one country in love of our country and trying to help each other. 
And I remember people coming from all over America. There were cops and firefighters driving in from, from the West Coast, from, from Chicago, from all over the country to help us. And it was a, uh, it was a sight to behold. I mean, it was a it's, horrendous event. It it's interesting how you describe your your sense of of identity there and identifying as a New Yorker and, and an American. How did you end up going from Bali Buffet in in Donegal to New York City? Well, I I had the good fortune of being born in America. My parents both from Donegal. Um, they immigrated in the uh, late fifties, early sixties, and they met in America. I grew up, I did my national school at uh, Jewish National School, and I did my leaving start at Sonora Vocational School in Donegal. So um, in the mid-80s, it's, you know, the height of the, you know, a really bad recession. And um, I moved to New York and worked construction for three or four years, like most Irish that went over, and joined the NYPD in April 1990. Your your work at Ground Zero for those three months after 9-11 it had an insidious impact on your health over the years, I understand. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Listen, everybody that worked down there was affected by it. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, there's, there's a, I was just watching on Facebook, there's, there's, a, there's a, a police officer passed away two days ago. A lot of people have gotten cancers, respiratory diseases, and there's over 72,000 people that worked down there that are suffering uh, different medical uh, ailments from from the work down there, from the stuff we breathed in. And um, listen, we, we, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I'm still on the right side of the ground here. And, um, um, you know, my wife and I do a 9-11 exhibition called Ground Zero 360. And it's something that we like to um, honor the victims of 9-11 and their surviving families. And we have a big 20th anniversary event in Dallas and one of the things we're doing is we're honoring all of the first responders that have passed away since 9-11 due to the serious illnesses that they, that they contracted while working down there. You're 52 now, Paul, I think. How do you see the 32-year-old you at that time in September 2001, a young man grappling with an extraordinary situation? When you look through that lens of two decades, how do you see yourself back then? I was—I always say this—I left Donegal a very innocent, naive young man, and I've seen things. Like uh, the funny thing is, when when I was working down there, there was no time to digest the things that I was seeing, like the bodies, the remains, the destruction. It was something as 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 a, as a cop, we worked seven days a week. 16 to 18 hour days and we went home we slept and we came back to work and we did that for three months we were working on on the doing the bucket brigade on the pile we were helping that in any way we could and when the three months four months were up and 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 things were, were were getting cleared up and we were you know we had to go back and handle crime in our own precincts then when things started settling down if you could ever say that we didn't get a chance to really think about what had happened. And as I said, I find myself, I was in Dallas two weeks ago putting up the 9-11 exhibition. One of the, one of the things that, that my wife does in her exhibition is she created a wall of the missing. Like One of the things that happened right after 9-11 was that families started descending down to ground zero, holding missing posters of their lost loved ones. Desperately sad, 
devastating stuff. And they were looking to us or to anybody uh, who they thought could help them, begging us for help. And these missing posters started going up, thousands and thousands of them all over lower Manhattan and to the hospitals, the bus stations, train stations, on the you know construction site. They were going up everywhere. So Nicolay recreated the Wall of the Missing uh, to honor the victims. And I remember I was putting it up in Dallas and the, uh, and a gust of air came in and it started blowing the posters up like it was down when we were working down there. I just, just kind of like a flashback moment. It was like, oh my God. Just putting up the missing posters, you see all these faces staring back at you and you know every single one of them's gone. Paul McCormack, thank you so much for joining us on the programme here on Newstalk. God bless. And that was Paul McCormack who was working as a police officer in New York on 9-11. Thank you to all of my interviewees for this programme, Irish Lives on 9-11, a 20th anniversary News Talk special. My name is Simon Tierney. Thank you for listening. Irish Lives on 9-11, a 20th anniversary News Talk special.